welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast, where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. Can we go back and just watch number four again? <laughs> this week, we are discussing 1989 Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, William Shatner's film directorial debut. A mistake. A mistake. It was a trap and he shouldn't have done it. So during the TOS years, the television series years, Shatner and Nimoy were often kind of had this like frenemies rivalry going on when it came to how much screen time they got to do, what kinds of stuff they got to do on screen. Uh, Hold on just a second. Okay, listen, I know a lot of things about William Shatner the kind of person he is, you know, what people have said about him over the years during his very long and long career. And and I just, I don't know. I That doesn't, I don't think that it, it, Shatner seems like a saint of a man and, oh and I, he would never, he would never, never, uh, ever, never, ever, never. Sam, don't be a Shatner stan. Ever. He went to space. He's actually been to space. (laughs) Oh, my God. I try to forget that whenever possible. Basically, their lawyers got involved. And (laughs) at one point during the television show, they drafted what would then become their working agreement, which is what Shatner called a favored nations clause with the result that whatever Shatner got, Nimoy got, whether that be pay raises or control of a script or whatever. And vice versa. So since Nimoy had directed the last two films, Shatner had directed previous plays and television episodes, not Star Trek, just television episodes. And now he wanted to direct a film. Is Sheldon's roommate contract on the Big Bang Theory a reference to this? Because it sure seems that way. They would know enough about Star Trek to know, right? They would be in the know. So not only did he get control directorially, but he also developed this film and the story behind this film. So this idea was developed by Shatner and Harv Bennett, who we've talked about before. Harv Bennett actually didn't want to come back to the film franchise. He was sort of done with Star Trek. He was a little burned out. He did not like his partnership with Nimoy on 4, and so he was ready to leave. But Shatner tracked him down at his house and convinced him to help him develop this story. I'm sure he's real glad he said yes to that. Again, this reminds me of something Sheldon did on The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> Who is it? Do you remember? He has a restraining order. I'm not is sure. Is it Will Wheaton? It's No, no. They became friends. But I think it's another Star Trek actor. Hold on. Keep monologuing. I'll be right back with you. Anyway, so while while you're looking that up, the screenplay was written by David Laurie. Again, I don't know how he feels about that decision. The music was by Jerry Goldsmith, who actually composed the music for the first film that Horner had and others had been kind of riffing off of since then. So he came back to direct this film. I don't think I mentioned this during our episode on the first film, but Jerry Goldsmith is actually most well known for doing the music for the Rambo franchise, as well as Logan's Run. Planet of the Apes, Patton, Chinatown, Alien, Poltergeist, Gremlins. I know you like Gremlins. Why are, why are you pointing at I me? I know you like Gremlins. LA Confidential, I Mulan, like the <laughs> and The Mummy. Okay, what did you find out on your Google? So, 
my memory served me well. What I was thinking was Sheldon has multiple restraining orders taken out against him. I mean, don't you figure? Right. One of which is a major Star Trek actor. So the internets have informed me that Sheldon has restraining orders from Carl Sagan, Bill Nye, Stan Lee, and Leonard Nimoy. Ah, uh, I mean, that would make sense. It makes sense to me. So he tried to torment one too many Leonards in real life, and one of them actually stood up for himself. And and that brings us back to Star Trek V. And that brings us back to Star Trek V. So just a very brief summary. The crew of the Enterprise are on shore leave pending Scotty's repairs of the new Enterprise. They are soon recalled to their posts, however, when word comes of a hostage situation on Nimbus 3, a planet shared by the Romulan Empire, the Klingon Empire, and the Federation. When they get to Nimbus 3, they discover that Cybok, a Vulcan heretic and Spock's half-brother, has created a fanatical army through his telepathy. He takes over the Enterprise and its crew with one purpose in mind, to find God at the center of the galaxy. That's right. This movie is about finding God. <laughs> and let's let's just remember here, before we go any further, when you say heretic, he is a heretic because he has feelings and emotions. It's kind of the opposite of what we do here, which... All of a sudden makes me realize we have, in fact, returned back to the Middle Ages. Hello, everybody. If you display intelligence, you will be shot on sight. It's not that he has feelings. It's that he rejects logic and allows his feelings to, like, control his actions. This this guy. I All mean, Vulcans have feelings. They just well, pretend that they don't. You know, it's funny. I It started to dawn on me a little bit. Because I began thinking as we were watching the movie, because we had we had just watched Eyes of Tammy Faye. Yeah. If I remember correctly. We had watched it like two days before we watched this. Right. And and I was thinking about that a little bit, and that's when you said, you know. Yeah. So Shatner was really inspired to develop this idea because this was really the eighties were really the time of the the televangelists like Tammy Faye and Pat Robertson and Oral Roberts and Jerry Falwell and all of these people. And so he really wanted to explore the idea of somebody who has this kind of influence and sway. And what do people who follow these people get out of it? And like, how do they exert so much power? What did you think about the Cybok storyline, Lawrence Leckenbill's performance, his relationship to Spock? Just give me some, some of your feelings on this. Okay, two things. One, I just want to point out that this is William Shatner's attempt at riffing on this. Bill Collins and his friends at Genesis a couple of years later would also do the same with a far superior product. What, like a five-minute song? Takes a lot less time, covers the same ground, you know, as this movie does. As we are recording this, we just finished what? Is it the fourth episode of Picard? The second season? Which has some real Voyage Home vibes. Right. And I, I'm, I'm really enjoying it for that reason. I, but the thing about it is, so having seen the original series, which is not serialized, it's very episodic, and knowing 
with some notable exceptions that are covered in Picard season two, Next Generation is also very episodic. I think most of them are. Well, a lot of them are episodic, but then you do have storylines that branch seasons or right. or that come back in other episodes more often than they do in TOS. Very rarely does a, a story come back in TOS. Mud is the only one that I can really think of off the top of my head, and that's more of a character than a story. But there's a lot more two-parters. But what, about, a lot more, what about the Borg, though? Yeah, a lot more like the Borg yeah. will come back or Q will come back or you'll have a character that was introduced here that comes back in this storyline. So here's the thing. And especially as you get later on in the series, you get a lot more of those. So you asked me about this this characterization, this acting, this role. And I'm going to tell you, this is true for all of those things, but it's true for the entire movie. This sounds a lot less stupid if they had done Kirk. Like they're doing Picard. If they had done Kirk, right. this would have been a season of television. Okay. It sounds a lot less ridiculous, foolish, ill-advised if it was drawn out over multiple hours because they're asking us to invest in this character, this concept, not just of evangelism, but also... This easing of one tension, perhaps creation of another between, you know, the three species, I guess, if you will. All of which are fine, like on paper, it seems fine. I mean, and, you know, if it was a season of television, maybe you could keep him from directing it. So that would also help. <laughs> this needed time to breathe and noting that it is shorter than most of the other movies. I don't remember off the top of my head how long Search for Spock is, but it might be the shortest, and it did not need to be. It had more to do than any of the other movies did. But not enough time to do it in. No. There's no closure. Right. Yeah, I mean, even you were like, wait, so... What happens to the people that were under his power at the end of the movie? Like, you were even like, so we're just going to like... And how did they get under his power in the first place? Oh, I just revealed their shame. Oh, okie dokie. Yeah, it's not very clear. And then you beat them over the head and hit him with a laser beam, like, x-ray mind control device, right? Right? (laughs) We didn't see that part. (laughs) I got that. Mm -hmm. Off camera. We didn't have the money for that special effect. Because that stopped Star Trek before. (laughs) So we've talked a a lot about how Nicholas Meyer in the second movie really tries to turn Star Trek from the philosophical into the literary. Nimoy, to a certain extent, keeps that going and also tries to bring in some political, environmental stuff. This seems to be Shatner trying to pull it back into the philosophical, back into the religious. Like this felt to me like it had more high concept stuff in it, like the first movie, even though it wasn't as Kubrickian as the first movie. Okay. So first of all, I'm trying to imagine a world in which I met William Shatner. Okay. I don't know what circumstance could possibly lead to that. I'm not thinking of like a convention. I'm thinking about like a real interaction. And I'm also assuming he's mostly mobile. I don't really know how well he's getting around these days, but like, I'm trying to think like a well enough to get into space. Well, I mean, when you have that much money, anything's possible. And no, I'm not referring to Shatner. 
Now, <laughs> most of the realities I can imagine are not good. I'd be like, no, I don't want that. I could imagine, and I imagine this is what many Star Trek fans would also enjoy, like hanging out with William Shatner on the bri- rec- a recreation of the the bridge of the Enterprise and... You know, you're all having a good time and and LARPing and everybody's having fun, right? That sounds fun, right? On the other hand, the exact opposite of that would be if William Shatner said to me, let's get philosophical for a minute. I'd be like, I have to go. (laughs) Let's get deep. That was a very long setup for that. So was this movie, a very long setup for that. Yeah, so the other thing, too, is that there is this whole God storyline, and Harv Bennett hated this idea that they're, like, going to meet God. He didn't mind the idea of Cybok saying they were going to meet God, but he didn't like the ways in which it's like, okay, we're going to actually meet this being that claims to be God, but it's actually not God, because he thought this is going to be too divisive, fans are not going to like it, because it's too religious. It's too like definite when it comes to religious. Nimoy's in the background. Oh, they're not going to like it. That's not going to be the reason. Let's make it anyway. Yeah. Has the check cleared? All right. Cut film. Let's go. Harf Bennett also was like, we can't definitively say whether there's a God or not. Like that, what are you doing? What? How do you think that would be a good idea? Well, you know what I said to you, right? This guy's a jerk, and then his parents come in and tell him to stop being a jerk, and then it's an episode of TOS we watched several months ago. Right. That'd be hilarious if this actually was the same thing. We've done this before. Yeah. This felt, again, this felt meant for television. Again, we haven't watched Discovery, so I mean, I don't know if it's more serialized in that way. I, I think it is. I think what's really interesting, by the way, just a side note on Picard, is I think that that show is a very good amalgamation of the OG verse and the Kelvin verse. I think so. I mean, without knowing, and I'm not lumping in Discovery because that's really post Kelvin verse as well. I don't know Enterprise back. I don't know if really anything becomes that whiz bang, shooty shooty, run real fast thing that Abrams does, which I know a lot of folks complained about that's not Trek, that's Star Wars, and then lo and behold, guess what he ruined? Next. But he didn't actually ruin your franchise, guys. He ruined ours, all right? Calm down. This story not only would have been good on television, it would have been good in that kind of amalgamation. But what I said while I was watching it was that this seems like an OG episode. A really complicated one. Right. And I mean, like, those were overlong and overstuffed and dragged in places, which this movie did too. So, I mean, yeah, it really did feel that way. It felt more like a television episode that they stretched and made into a movie. And if you think about the fact that that is the polar opposite of what the first movie is. The first movie is so cinematic and philosophical, I never want to see it again, although we're going to because the remaster is about to come out in a couple of weeks. Hooray. But this is the exact opposite of that. This is as non-cinematic as you can possibly get because 
it reminded me of the original series. And that's not, that shouldn't have to necessarily be a dig. It is here. I was about to say, you said this about three as well, but you didn't mean it as a dig when you were talking about the third film, Search for Spock. But you mean that as sort of a dig at this film. Well, right. I mean, this is one of the episodes that would be like when I was watching and I was like, come on, come on. We don't wrap it up, guys. Right. Oh, good Lord. There's 15 minutes left. Are you ready for installment one of three of production problems with this film? Okay. I don't like when you turn things back on me. I don't. I don't. This bit was funny when I did it. I'm not sure I like it now. So while the script was being developed by Harve Bennett and David Lowry, there was a writer's strike. And of course, being a good union member that Lowry was, he stopped working on the script, right, during the strike. So As one does. And then the production was further delayed when Nimoy became began to work on a different project. Then when the writer's strike it ended, Lowry returned to work on the script, but Shatner had to leave for another project. And then when he came back, he took one look at the script and was like, no, this is not what I had in mind at all, especially because Lowry had added the search for God into the search for the mythical paradise, Shah Kari, which is what Cybok says that he's looking for. And that eventually does make it into the film, which, by the way, if that sounds familiar, it is supposed to be a wordplay on Sean Connery, which is who they wanted to play that character to begin with. Then they finally got the script where they wanted it to, but in their the version and then of... that castle caught fire and burned down. <laughs> they finally got the script where they wanted it to be, and in this version, you know how Uhura and Chekhov and Sulu all betray Kirk because they're mind-melded, telepathized, whatever, into helping Cybok? Sure. In this version, both Spock and McCoy would have also betrayed him, and Kirk would have stood alone because he'd be the only one that doesn't fall for the, the thing. But both Nimoy and Kelly were like, no, 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 we have final script approval. It is out of character for these two to actually betray Kirk. They would never do that. So they had to negotiate that particular scene, which I do want to talk about. And then finally, Paramount was concerned that the film would go over budget as it was written and ordered cuts. So Shatner originally envisioned angels and demons that they would have to fight at the film's climax, but they were converted to rock monsters that the false god would animate from the earth. He wanted originally six of those creatures, but was forced... It was a rock monster! He was forced to accept just one. And if that sounds weird to you, like, there wasn't a rock monster in that. Oh, just wait. A smart person. (laughs) Like, I don't know Leonard Nimoy. Might have said, oh, one rock monster meeting God? Did somebody say golem? I know. I mean, like, it feels like you could have made something out of this. But he didn't. So <laughs> Here's why. I do want to talk about that scene, though, because we do get this scene where Cybok, we haven't really seen how Cybok does his, like, weird conversion thing, but we do get a scene where he confronts McCoy's deepest pain where it turns out that he helped his father die because his father was in an unimaginable pain. And then shortly afterwards, there was a cure discovered for his father's condition. So he has a lot of guilt over that. And then we also get the scene where Spock confronts the way that his father rejected him at his birth because he was half human. 
which honestly, I have a huge problem with that. Although I do like that Spock is like, no, that doesn't actually convince me to come to your side because I've already resolved all these feelings, which makes sense. Isn't that what the last like three movies were about? In the end, though, they stick with Kirk. What did you think about this scene and the what, what it says about these three characters? This scene made no impact on me. I couldn't even remember which one you were talking about initially. So I'll just say this instead. Every time you say Cybok, I'm like, say it's, it's Reebok or Psyduck. I just <laughs> pick one and say it because that's not a real name. I understand. That is that is that is something that I keep thinking about more than I do any single thing from this movie. Is what, that that's a dumb name. What did you think about Cybok as Spock's half brother, which doesn't really get revealed till halfway through? <laughs> we never talk about this again. I just want you to know that nobody ever talks about Cybok being his half brother after this. It's such a weird <laughs> detail. Like why? Uh, I don't. I I mean, it feels like they're trying to reintroduce this conflict that Spock has been working through. But then Spock is just like, no, I already resolved that. I I don't worry about it anymore. I don't know. Is it supposed to be growth? I can't really tell. I mean, I just feel like, you know, you know, growing up, all the pop culture jokes about Star Trek were some variation of Star Trek 12. So very tired and it feels and I, and I know that's more of a rag on the fact that they're all getting a little gray at this point and I I'm guessing by the the next installment the final installment they are grayer but this could apply here so very tired as in all the concepts are so very t- oh look he's a half brother who could have possibly expected a twist like that in this. I also don't understand because that's we're supposed to say their deepest pain or their deepest shame or whatever, but like it doesn't make sense to me that Sarah could be like, he's half human. He had sex with Amanda and had a baby with her. Of course Spock was gonna be half human. Like I don't like <laughs> I'm not trying to like say that like pe- parents aren't racist against their own children. Like Sarah Listen, for somebody who's real logical, he's real not clear on how this whole genetic thing works. <laughs> Sarek, to me, does have problems with Spock's half-human heritage. And we've seen that before in TOS. And we see him resolve that in The Voyage Home, in Search for Sock and The Voyage Home. But it has more to do with Spock's choices than it does, I think, to do with, oh, he's half-human. He'll never be good enough. Like, to me, that didn't make, that didn't make any sense as a scene. Like, I felt like Cybok made that up. Because it didn't fit in with who we know Sarek to be as a person. Sounds right. I mean, that's just yeah. how I felt about it. It was just, that was the most gl- jarring thing to me. That was the most jarring uh, I mean, there was thing. a lot of that, jarring that. things. Up to and including Uhura's weird stripping sequence halfway through this in order to distract the guards. I have no notes. <laughs> <laughs> you, well, any reaction? Nope. No, none nope. at all? Nope. I mean, on the one hand, I don't want to be like... Nichelle Nichols was too old to do this because that's actually not my problem with it. Okay. And let's, let's, before you say what your problem is with it, because we should hear that, let's contextualize it this way. The first interracial kiss on television was a Star Trek episode. However, I'm going to put an asterisk by that because it wasn't really a kiss, it was a mush mouth. 
<laughs> happenstance created by mind control. Are you telling me that this is worse than that? I'm not going to say it's worse than that, but I think that Shatner has a real problem with not seeing any of these characters as mature characters. Like he still wants them to be the characters they were in TOS because of we get Uhura who has sung in TOS and she did use her feminine wiles to distract people every once in a while. And I felt like he was just like, oh, well, she'd do that in the TV show. So she'd do that now, right? And the reason I can say that is because we have this extended rock climbing sequence at the beginning that we're supposed to believe Kirk is doing, which, by the way, was accomplished with a lot of body doubles. All these people are like 33. Calm down. <laughs> In real life. Like, I, I, to me, Shatner, unlike Nimoy and unlike Nicholas Meyer, who seem to understand that these characters are older, Shatner to me is just like, of course Kirk would still be rock climbing. Of course, Uhura would still be distracting guards with fan dancing against the moon. And then a decade later, Tom Cruise would be like, you know what I want to do? I want to recreate the beginning scene of Star Trek V. <laughs> yes, that little known fact. That's why <laughs> he's rock climbing at the beginning of that Mission Impossible movie. It's specifically he an was, homage was, to Star yes, Trek V. it was. It was. It was. So you did say there was, while we were watching it, you did say there was one thing that worked for you, and that was a lot of the humor of this film, a lot of the character interactions. Two things I want to hit on on this. One, the camping scene at the beginning. Thoughts? I, I would suggest a script edit. Bach would be saying to, to Bones, why are you so... Why are you in such a bad mood? Why, Whatever Spock way he would say that. He's like, Listen, I did both of your vacations. It's my turn, and you guys could act a little bit more, you know, part of it than this. Like, I don't like your attitude. I think they did do all three of their vacations. Kirk got to show off and almost die. Spock got to save Kirk, and McCoy got to drink around a fire and try to teach Spock, row, row your boat. And another thing. <laughs> row, row, row your boat, huh? That's what we're going to sing. That's it. Yeah, I mean, did you think Kirk was going to know more complicated lyrics than that? I I don't know. This is <laughs> row 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 your boat. Did did okay, listen. I know that cowboys are a myth. Like we we know, well, I mean, they existed, but not the kind that we saw in the movies, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Ms. Buck. Dr. Bronco Henry. Western when when she go oh god, please stop. <laughs> what a bad concept get it because benedict cumberbatch oh my god anyway yeah you deserve that so somebody who's much more familiar with westerns than i am like peak we are not ironic eating our own tail yet like actual westerns have you ever seen the duke or jimmy stewart or any of those people singing row, row, row your boat. Have you? <laughs> no. All right, then. I rest my case, Your Honor. I know you don't really particularly care about the whole like triad of it all or like those personalities or whatever. A triad? Is that what we're calling it now? I've, I feel like you're gaslighting me right now. 
Oh, sorry. A thruple. Stop trying to make thruples happen, Tessa. Oh, my God. Okay. So, but here's the thing is that I thought that the scene at the beginning where they're camping and McCoy's mad at Kirk for almost dying and like, you know, they're they're doing their usual like old men bickering thing. I thought it was interesting, though, that Kirk was like, oh, I never thought I was going to die because you two were here. And I've always known that I was going to die alone. Like, as long as you two are here, like, I'm fine. What did you think about the ways in which they appear to have resolved a lot of their personal differences by the beginning of this film? Fun fact, this movie is also the genesis of the movie from a few years later starring Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau, Grumpy Old Men. I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking that is like a continuation of The Odd Couple, but I assure you it's actually a a carry forward of this and the reason I know that's true is they realized they needed a third person, so they got Burgess Meredith. So you see, that's also what this is. What was your question? Oh, just what did you think about the ways in which these characters seem very like they've worked through a lot of their personal differences, that are older now? I think McCoy even said, you know, we don't fight as much anymore. Like, you know, there's this real sense that like they're all going on vacation together. Spock and McCoy seem to have worked out a lot of their their stuff, even though they kind of still make fun of each other a little bit. So this is like, okay, I know, I know we've had fun and I've told you to not make thruples happen several times. So I know this might sound a little bit ironic, but just stick with me on this. So of course we know about the old institution called a Boston marriage in which two women live together. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Right. So what you're describing to me and when as you say it I'm I'm hearing that this very much does sound like an old married couple who have so- settled into you know older age and so I would like to see your Boston marriage and raise it to starship thruple. Starship thruple. I like right. that. I right. like that. And, but 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 here's the thing. Tessa the principle of both is we don't talk about it. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for production problems part two of three? Oh, we're still on the... Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. So they filmed a lot of these scenes at Yosemite National Park, which is actually where they are in the film. Like Yosemite National Park still exists. By the way, I want to interrupt you real fast. And I just want to say to anybody out there who is, who is fancying podcasting with Tessa, I want to tell you two things. First of all, you should. It's fun. Everybody enjoys it. She's delightful. Aw. Second, if she tells you, I don't think we have a lot to talk about. I don't think the episode will go that long. She's lying, and she may not know it yet, but she is. Well. Make plans not to have any other plans. I mean... I don't know. I don't feel like there is. We, we've just been kind of talking about the same issue with this film. Production problem number two. Production problem number two. So right before the beginning of location shooting, before they went to Yosemite National Park to film a lot of the climbing sequences, the Hollywood Union of Truck Drivers or Teamsters went on strike. So this is their second strike of this film. So, you know, decades ago, they struck for better, better wages, better hours, Probably better health insurance like that. Now they just don't want to get a vaccination. I'm actually going to read this just from... Just kidding, you guys are great. I'm actually going to read this from the Wikipedia page because I don't have a better way of saying it. What happened? 
With deadlines looming, the production searched for non-union drivers, aware that the Teamsters might retaliate by sabotaging equipment or flying airplanes above the filming to ruin audio recordings. Star Trek V, the search for non-union drivers. (laughs) Go on. I just want you to hear this next part. After one of the production's camera trucks exploded in the (laughs) studio parking lot... In the studio parking lot, the non-union drivers headed to Yosemite National Park under the cover of darkness with a police escort. We we have fun, right? We, you know, we, we in the last hundred years, we've had um, really a couple of red scares and, you know, people have been executed rightly or wrongly. And I don't mean like morally or ethically. That was wrongly 100% of the time. But rightly or wrongly, actually you know, socialist or communist, right? Like, I know we talk big, right? We've had a lot of fun. We've enjoyed ourselves. We had a Berlin Wall come down. We saw the fall of the Soviet Union and whatever this is. But listen. Listen, we can we can debate the whole socialism, communism thing all day. And, and it intersects with utopianism. In some very purposeful ways. Don't break a picket line. You're a piece of shit if you do. Good yep. night. Yep. Pretty much. That, that is what happened. But don't worry. The production stuff is not over. But before we get to that, before we get to that, I want to get to what is possibly your favorite part of this film, which is Scotty. Tell us about your favorite character, Scotty, in this film. MVP, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. No one else knows what they're doing. I mean, well, see, and that's the thing. Like, in real life, Kirk would have plummeted to his death in that rock climbing scene. Why? Because Scotty wasn't there. Because he's the one when it comes down to it. Like, he is the person you need. Again, fastest pecker in space. (laughs) He is who you want to choose. (laughs) For all your adventuring needs. (laughs) Right. For anyone who doesn't know what that is, please listen to our last episode before you get us censored for explicit content. Phrasing. Oh, so fastest pecker in space is problematic, but I can just make all these kind of like socialism and communist things, right? (laughs) That's fine. Okay. Well, I hate to tell you, but American history says different. Anyway, MVP, as always. Tell us about the jailbreak. Okay, listen, it's just a classic thing that you learn from, you know, absorbing pop culture as you grow up. When somebody says duck, you don't look around for waterfowl, you get down. (laughs) So when somebody tells you to stand back, you don't go, oh, that's one of my favorite Stevie Nicks songs. You get back. I like how he yells at them as soon as the wall comes down. He's like, what are you standing around for? And well-deserved. Yeah. I agree with all, I, I, no notes. I love Scotty in this movie, even in the beginning where he like takes a rain check on his vacation because he's repairing the enterprise. And my favorite. Here's the thing though. Like they're all around all the time. And I I feel great empathy because, you know, I'm trying to do something. I need you to not be destroying everything I do, either while I'm doing it or the second I've done it. 
I need you to just be cool for five seconds. And, and so my idea of vacation would sometimes be, oh, I can actually do my job without anybody else around to mess it up. That sounds like heaven. And to be fair, when Kirk calls him on it, he's like, you said you could do this in two weeks and I've given you three. His response is that might have been too much time. I mean, like, I get it. I get it. Like, if you're a fiddler like Scotty, I mean, he's a fiddler, right? Like, he he's always trying to improve stuff. He's always fiddling around with stuff. Too much time actually might not be good for him. He's not used to it. He's used to having, like, 40 minutes or something to, like, turn a catastrophe around for Kirk. All I'm saying is, is Han Solo never would have ended up in Kryptonite if Scotty was on the Falcon. That's all. It's true. That's all. It's true. However. Ben might not have ever died. I don't. I mean, I don't know how, but he probably still. Anakin probably wouldn't have gone to the dark side if he didn't have a Scotty. If he had a Scotty, here's the thing. J.J. Abrams would have never made that trash fire of a movie if oh he had, had a Scotty. Okay. All right. All right. One more. Well, that was three. Okay. Are you done? Probably not. Because I will. I do have to say that as much as I like Scotty in this movie, it seems like Shatner also understood that Scotty was MVP and that a lot of stuff wouldn't happen if Scotty was like conscious and free running around the ship. And so he takes him out in possibly the dumbest way I've ever seen, which is he says, I know this ship like the back of my hand and hits his head on the, the girder and is like unconscious for most of the rest of the film. How did that make you feel? He would have taken one look at Jar Jar Binks and said, nope, <laughs> no, we're not doing that. All right. So we're that's not, how that made not, you feel. We're not doing that. Okay. Fair. And then the final thing I wanted to talk about before production problems number three, and we wrap up this podcast, is that there is a Klingon thread in this because there is another ship of Klingons that is sort of stalking the Enterprise in a weird way that doesn't make sense until the end of the movie. And then you're like, okay, this feels strange. But they're stalking the Enterprise because their captain really wants to kill Kirk. One of the hostages is this old like Klingon general. There's all of these like issues that Kirk is having because he hates the Klingons because of the death of his son. But then Spock ends up using the Klingon general to take over the other Klingon ship, which he uses to save Kirk from the God, not God situation down on the planet. What did you think about all this stuff with the Klingons up to and including the line, sir, not in front of the Klingons? You like Star Trek, <laughs> right? Yes. You, you've seen most of it, right? Yes. Some of it more than once. A lot of it more than once, right? Yep. Let me ask you a question. Which franchise... Which episodes, which film, I don't know what. In in which part of this very, very large enterprise, if you will, do we get to see a elaborate production that deals with the time and the process in which the Klingons and the Federation become bros. The next movie. Okay. All I'm saying is that should have probably happened first. I mean, but you can kind of see some of the threads starting to come together where they're enemies, but this one warrior, yeah, but, he's able to appeal to him. Okay, 
first of all, this subplot should have been its own thing. Right. Here's why. So you know that whole thing about how, and like at the risk of doing Orientalism, I'm not saying this is a thing that actually happened or if it did, it's a thing we should narrativize in this way. But you know that thing that people talk about, about how they're like in the, you know, the Pacific, there's islands where people don't know that World War II is over yet and blah, blah, blah. That would be a good version of this. Like that. Like, oh, this guy doesn't know we're not doing this anymore. I mean, I think that could have been more interesting. He does seem more like a plot point than anything else. And not a good one. And not a good one. It's one of those plot points in a statistical array that you rule out because it's, you know, out there and it doesn't fit. Right. Although there was this whole thing about, like, not in front of the Klingons that I just think is very funny, but not in a way that is earned. (laughs) I'm, I'm not amused. Fair. Fair. So, are you ready for production problem number three? Wait, we're still on number two? Number three. Oh. So, you know how in the first segment of this, I said that Paramount argued Shatner down to one rock monster? The special effects problem. This movie has one. (laughs) Industrial Light and Magic had provided the effects for the three previous Star Trek films, and Paramount wanted them to work on Final Frontier. However, all of their best technicians blew all our money on Howard the Duck. However, (laughs) all of their effects house's best technicians were busy working on Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and Ghostbusters 2. So they didn't have their good people and they were like, "Hmm." well, you know what they say? Half of a good idea out of two movies works for me. And so they decided to save time and money by doing as many of their effects as they could on stage or through camera trickery. See, listen. Listen, Rock Monster, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, this golem thing is really going to turn out if we had just thought about it a little bit longer. And I know what you're thinking. That's not the same thing. I know that would have been neat, though, right? Whole philosophical discussion. You have Sean Connery. He could be in both movies at this point, too. Like, you share your special effects. You share your co-star. You, um, you know, you... You know, like, I think this is really good. You still have, you 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 have, Indiana was the dog's name. That that works in any movie. So, I mean, like, <laughs> you could really just. The crossover we never knew we I needed. I like it. I like it. I like it. It's better than what we did in this movie. And three. And one. So, and a lot of episodes of the original series. So, they also told them about this this rock monster and said, you have three months to do all the special effects for this, which is half of the industry timeline at that time. They made the rock monster, which was a suit. They had it. They had it rigged to do like to blow smoke out of its mouth, and it was dubbed the Rock Man. The suit. It was a late. And a young man named Andy was inside the suit. (laughs) Andy Circus. The monster dubbed the Rock Man was a large latex rubber suit that breathed fire on (laughs) command. They smoked cigarettes and blew the smoke into the suit's tubing. They hotboxed the rock monster. But the problem is, is that the very last day of shooting, it started to have mechanical problems. And they, because they blew cigarette smoke in. And <laughs> they couldn't. We, you know, as much as we talk about the fact that we should be able to be in the movie or TV business, I'm beginning to think we're not wrong. Because if this is the kind of brain trust 
that we have behind Lucasfilm and Industrial Light and Magic. And- no, these were not their best people. Remember, their best people <laughs> were working on different film. These were the other people, the people who were not allowed to work on Indiana Jones or Ghostbusters 2. All right, so listen. If the A team is working on that and the B team is working on that, I would like to now henceforth dub Tessa and I the B-plus team. <laughs> so... We have good ideas. We just don't put in the effort that we could. We just should apply ourselves more. So Shatner filmed the scene anyway, but could only do so with wide shots because of the way that the suit was malfunctioning. Obviously, it didn't look good after after all of that. And so they had to pivot and do some special after filming effects. Shatner decided to return to the old Let's just shine a light on it and it'll look like a thing. Energy beams. So that's how we got the climax of this film. That's also why it's a lot shorter than the other films. He actually meant for this climax to be a lot larger and a lot more grandiose. How does that make you feel? Not good. Okay, so my final question to you before we wrap up. Is this worse than one? If you had to rank them so far. Oh, no. Okay. This was washable. Oh, so you still think this is watchable? Paramount said that this film almost killed the franchise. And keep in mind, Next Generation was on the air when this came out. Mm -hmm. They were still in their first season, I believe. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they hadn't hit their stride as a show, but still. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You've said, well, okay. So here's the thing. You have told me that the first season of Next Generation is not in many ways what we would call good. No, that is correct. Neither is really the second season. Right. So my point here is like, if you contextualize that and you just did, it would be like... Sorry, they were in their second season. Right. So like, you know, think about the fact that it's like, oh, we're going to expand the franchise by doing the next generation. Oh, man, that thing is like stabbing me in the chest every time. And then five comes around and you're almost dead already. So yeah, I don't. If you tell me that it almost killed the franchise, it's probably because the franchise was on what we would call thin ice. Right. And most people think that the season three, which is the next season of Next Gen, is when it really gets going as a show. There's a lot of stuff going on in season three that makes it really great. But yeah, this was not a good time to be a Star Trek fan. Coming soon to a set of headphones near you, we're going to be talking about The Next Generation, Season (laughs) 1. I can't wait. Can you? Yeah, we're we're definitely going to be talking about Season 1. But first, we have to talk about film number 6, Star Trek 6, The Undiscovered Country. This film was so bad. Next Gen wasn't doing so hot. They begged Nicholas Meyer from the second film to come back to direct. And he basically said, yeah, but I want to use my original title, The Undiscovered Country. So stay tuned for that. We're going to talk about that next week. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. Until next time, live long and prosper.